So, this evening, I'd like to give, I'd like to talk a bit about uh, death and dying. And this, this topic's been on my mind for a couple of weeks, actually. And I didn't talk about it so much last week because I feel like I'm, I'm exploring the topic. Um, it's very much alive right now for me. And sometimes it takes a little time for it to settle in to be able to actually feel like I can clearly talk about a certain subject. And the reason it's been up for me is there's actually been a lot of death in, uh, in my life and recently. And, uh, and death is funny that way. It seems that it, it comes in threes or it comes in fours. And uh, sometimes it can and feel like uh, there's just a lot of death happening. So I don't know. Maybe some of you are experiencing that in your life right now or have experienced it recently. And the Buddha talked quite a bit about death and dying. Um, in fact, one of the areas where it shows up, Betty, can you hear me back there? You can hear me okay? A little more, maybe a little bit more volume. Uh, so one of the lists where, where death comes up is uh, in five daily reflections that the Buddha recommends these are five reflections to, to reflect on every single day. And so I'll read them to you. Uh, and all of them have to do with this impermanent body, us as impermanent beings. So it goes like, like this. I am subject to aging. Having not gone beyond aging, this is the first fact that one should reflect on often, whether one is a woman or a man, lay or ordained. And then it goes on in the same sequence. I am subject to illness, having not gone beyond illness. I am subject to death, having not gone beyond death. And then this line, the translation can be different depending on who's translating it, but um, this is Tanisaro Bhikkhu. And he translated as, I will grow different, separate from all that is dear and appealing to me. I'll grow different, separate from all that is dear and appealing to me. I am the owner of my actions. And this is talking about karma. I'm the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions, and have my actions as my arbitrator. Whatever I do for good or for evil, to that will I fall heir. That seems reasonable enough. Our actions have consequences. So these are the five Reflections, daily reflections. And so um, to reflect in this way that we are in these human forms. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last week, the aggregates, the first aggregate meaning 
being formed, that we are this process of a body that is in constant flux, constant change. And of course, the way that we perceive ourselves, we don't change that much from day to day. But if you look back at an old photograph from when you were a kid, we realize, wow, we we change quite drastically, quite uh, radically. These bodies from the moment that we're born are aging. This is a fact of life. But we don't really think about it. We don't think about it very much until someone perhaps uh, dies or gets really sick. And so um, in that vein, uh, a dear friend of ours a few weeks ago passed away, elderly friend of ours. We, we knew he was coming to the end of his life. And uh, even still, there is something that is... Um, very sad and, and um, uh, dear about the, the loss of this person not being there anymore. And so going to a funeral, which I'm sure many of you have been to, to funerals, maybe many funerals, there's something so poignant about attending a funeral, which is really this memorial of somebody's life, or in some cases it's a, really a celebration of somebody's life. But either way, it really puts us into contact with the fact that our life, too, ends in the same way. We're all headed in the same direction. There's only one way out. But we don't think about that. We don't, a lot of us don't even like to talk about that. It's a very uncomfortable conversation for some of us and yet it's just true it's just a fact of life and so sometimes I feel like when I hear somebody has died someone I know who has died or or I go to a funeral and I'm really in that experience and that um, that teaching is so uh, prevalent that yes this is part of life it almost stops time In a way, I feel like I'm often just, if I could bring an image to it, just paddling through life, getting to the next thing, right? I got to get through this so that, you know, everything will be better. Or um, I've got to rush over here and get this done so that I can rush over here and get this done. And then I get to see all these people over here. And we lose track of the preciousness of even just being here, the miracle of just being here, being alive, this aliveness. We lose track of it. And then somebody passes away, and it's kind of like time stops. We can't help but come face to face with that fact, the truth of impermanence, the truth of our impermanence, the truth of impermanence of the people we care about. It makes us reflect on that. And unfortunately, uh, especially I think in our culture, there aren't many other opportunities that has such a powerful pause button for us to stop and reflect on our own impermanence and the impermanence of the people we care about. I spent some time in Southeast Asia a long time ago. It's been, well, it's been about 10 years now. And I went there to practice meditation 
and really immerse myself in a Buddhist culture. And what was very, seemed very um, obvious to me while I was there uh, was the difference. There were many cultural differences, but one of the cultural differences was the relationship with death. It was very, very different. Where here, you know, I remember when I was um, much younger and my grandparents died, and I'm, I have a, I come from an Irish Catholic background, and so there's, you know, days and days of viewing the body and, and um, uh, you know, church and services and, and um, the burial, and it's, it's, quite a long um, uh, memorial period of mourning and celebration. And, uh, and yet, when you, I remember viewing uh, my grandparents and they had makeup on and their really nice clothes and their hair was done and it, they weren't there. It was obvious that, you know, it's just the body the aliveness of the body is no longer there. It's just kind of this lump of flesh and bone and muscle. And, um, and yet we, we like to make it up, make it look, death look pretty and alive in some way. And I think that's okay. I think it's just our, our cultural way for some of us. It was in, in my family's culture. But um, I didn't see that so much in, in Thailand. In Thailand, it was all a little bit more raw. And I really appreciated it. Um, I came to this practice, actually, mostly because I was in deep pain because of a series of losses uh, in my life at a very young age where um, friends and, and really close family members um, had died in, in these very unexpected ways. And I was very confused by that. And there wasn't a lot of conversation about it. Um, Even though I I did come from a Catholic upbringing, and so there was talk of heaven and God and and all of that, but somehow it it wasn't really what I wanted to talk about. It wasn't really doing it for me. So I would find my my way to Thailand and and found myself face-to-face with quite a lot of death. I remember um, hiking through the jungles to this uh, cave monastery where I heard there were monks living in these caves. And I was just curious. I wasn't going to practice or anything like that. I was just very curious about what that would be like. It was so different from anything I had experienced before. And so I went out on this this, uh, trek to these caves, and I found them. And the first monk that I encountered came up and said, oh, hello, welcome, <laughs> just like that, <laughs> and said, my name is Sammy. <laughs> he was from uh, L.A., <laughs> which wasn't what I was expecting. <laughs> and, and so we had this really beautiful conversation. I got to talk with him and see you know, how he made this transition from, uh, I believe he was a pediatrician in L.A., and then made this transition into letting go of his worldly life and is now living in this cave in Thailand and um, so we had this really wonderful connection and at some point he said I'd love for you to meet my friend I said great 
And so he brought me into one of the caves, and his friend who he was talking about was, was deceased and in an open casket where he was uh, slowly, slowly decaying. And it, it was really startling at first. Sammy thought my reaction was pretty funny. I think he set me up a little bit for this. Um, but this was, this was his teacher and his friend, and it was just completely uh, normal to have uh, Sammy's teacher laid out in this really beautiful uh, casket, and um, there were flowers, and, and certainly a respect for, for this person in their passing, but also a realness of what, what was happening to what was left of this person seeing the decay of this of this body and it being just there for public display as a reminder of impermanence, which was one of the wishes of this particular monk. Traditionally, often um, uh, bodies are, are put through the funeral pyre and, and burned and cremated. Um, so it's, this wasn't necessarily the usual, but um, this was the request of this monk to really fully bring to light this impermanence, this body uh, is impermanent. And it goes back into this earth. It becomes uh, part of everything else. And we don't really see that. We don't really talk about it in this way. There were other examples of this, really simple examples of this in Thailand. Other examples, like for instance, uh, I would see um, large fish laid out to decay fully in the sun uh, in public spaces as a reminder of impermanence. And so there was so much more, there just seemed to be so much more um, opportunity for this reminder of coming into contact with, with this life is, is uh, progressing in this direction <laughs> for all of us. And yet it's, there's a way in which we can look at it in this way that can seem a little cold. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily want to see my loved ones deca- decaying and think of them in this way. Um, I don't necessarily want to just cut off my, um, my grieving or my, my sadness for their, their passing and their, their loss. Um, there's something in a way that's quite real about that for me. And so I want to share with you um, a really beautiful description of this. This is from John O'Donohue, who's a really famous writer and poet, um, uh, as well as a priest, one of my favorite writers, actually. And he he writes a lot about death. Um, He writes a lot about life, too. And I think any time we're exploring life fully, we have to also explore uh, this part of it. This is called When Death Visits. Death is a lonely visitor. After it visits your home, nothing is ever the same again. There is an empty place at the table. There is an absence in the house. Having someone close to you die is an, incredible, an incredibly strange and desolate experience. Something breaks within you 
then that will never come together again. Gone is the person whom you loved, whose face and hands and body you knew so well. This body, for the first time, is completely empty. This is very frightening and strange. After the death, many questions come into your mind concerning where the person is gone, what they see and feel now. The death of a loved one is bitterly lonely. When you really love someone, you would be willing to die in their place. Yet no one can take another's place when that time comes. Each one of us has to go alone. It is so strange that when someone dies, they literally disappear. Human experiences human experience includes all kinds of continuity and discontinuity, closeness and distance. In death, experience reaches the ultimate frontier. The deceased literally falls out of the visible world of form and presence. At birth, you appear out of nowhere. At death, you disappear to nowhere. The terrible moment of loneliness and grief comes when you realize that you will never see the deceased again. The absence of their life the absence of their voice, face, and presence becomes something that, as Sylvia Plath says, begins to grow beside you like a tree. And so even though in this practice, in our Buddhist practice, this is considered the ultimate letting go, death is not something that has to be feared, death is not something that has to happen behind closed doors, or fixed up with, um, you know, fixing up the body. Death is quite real. It's, it's quite practical in a way, the way that it's talked about in the suttas. Um, and it's this incredible place of practice to notice what our relationship with that loss is. The dead, they're, they're gone. They vanish into nothing just as we vanish or we appear in this world as we're born. We vanish when we die. And there's different ways in which uh, in Buddhism traditionally uh, there's different feelings of what happens after death, which I'm not going to get into in this talk. I'm more interested in what happens when we're still here and alive. What do we do with this, with this loss? There's a great uh, Buddhist scholar, Maurice Walsh. I think that's how he says his name. He says, It is sometimes said that death today has replaced sex as the great unmentionable. And certainly it is for most people an uncomfortable subject which they do not care to think about over much. Yet, if there is one thing that is certain in life, it is that we shall all die sooner or later. There was once a creed which declared millions now living will never die. And this, and it is, hmm. oh, and it had great appeal. This apparently was a speech that was often given uh, in the 1920s. I don't know much about, but this is what he's referencing. 
Millions now living will never die. But all those who first heard it proclaimed are now dead. So we all have to face death, whether we like it or not. And we all know it, however we may try to forget the fact. Let us then, at least for a while, stop trying to forget it and look death straight in the face. It is, of course, perfectly true that we can be too preoccupied with death. There are also there are those who are eaten up with fear of death so that they hardly have any energy or zest for living. And there are some for whom mortality and all its accompaniments and trappings have a particular fascination. Facing death realistically does not mean being obsessed by it. Here, as in other respects, Buddhism teaches a middle way. For those who have an unhealthy preoccupation with the subject, it can teach a saner and more balanced concern. For those who seek at all costs to avoid thinking about it, it can likewise show a reasonable approach. Fear of death is an unwholesome state of mind, and for this, as for other unwholesome states of mind, Buddhism can show a remedy. And so there's this balance of coming into contact, of uh, reflecting on it daily, as the suggestion is, to reflect on this impermanent body, as well as there's this sweetness, this compassion that also seems to be a part of this exploration. That we're not so obsessed with the logistics of it or that we don't go cold and indifferent to it. That when we're coming into contact with something uh, that is so profound and so imminent as death, as our own impermanence, that we do it in this way that is held with kindness and warmth. That it's not filled with fear and uh, disliking or a needing to push it away either. I'm teaching at a school right now in San Francisco. I teach mindfulness and education. And uh, around the same time as our, our friend passed away, our, uh, there was a teacher that also passed away at the school. And he was a really young guy Uh, in his 20s, and passed away due to a really freak thing that happened um, after a routine surgery. He threw a clot and and died. And it was shocking, of course. It was really shocking to the community there, the, the staff, the teachers. And then, of course, the kids who adored this man. He was their PE teacher. And um, not just adored by all the kids, but especially um, adored and was quite the role model for a lot of the young boys there. And so his passing was um, quite shocking. And I came to school, I I teach there twice a, a week, and I didn't realize that this had happened, I hadn't gotten the news. And so when I showed up, I found out that this is what was going on and that they were really in this state of process of coming into um, contact with the fact that this person was no longer with us. 
And the kids, it was really difficult for them. I think it was more difficult in some ways for the adults to um, be able to come to terms with such a thing, such a loss, such a seemingly uh, pointless loss, which I think is so often true when we lose people who are, who are young and vital. You know, what's the point? And we can get so consumed by that, that um, holding on and that grasping to, what's the point? It's not fair. Which in, its, in a way is a part of the grieving process, of course. The grieving process is, is one in which we have to work through those areas in which we're still clinging on to that person who's no longer here with us. And it's so painful. Because what's being asked of us is to slowly, slowly let go. And it's really hard for us, especially when we aren't practiced in, in this way, not practiced in um, coming into contact with the fact of impermanence. When we're not practiced in this way, then when there is impermanence, it's shocking and it's so painful. And all we want to do is hang on as much as possible to that person that we cared about, that person who's no longer here. And yet the practices in our natural unfolding through the grief process, if, it's, if we're doing it in a healthy way, is to slowly, slowly let go. Let go. And so I've been watching this process happen at this school as I go twice a week, and it's been a couple of weeks now. And yet still, um, his name was Mr. Male, and Mr. Male comes up in conversation quite a bit. We're practicing mindfulness, and so we're really touching into the heart, and we're touching into presence. And so heart and presence often bring up different emotions and uh, and so they wanted, the kids want to talk about Mr. Male and their loss. And just the other day, one of the boys said, I just still don't believe he's gone. I just don't think he's dead. And was really serious about it, like he was going to walk through the door any moment. And we do that, I think, with death. Kind of this denial process that we just want to hang on. We want to hang on so dearly to something that's no longer here. It's painful when we do that. And so when we are not going through the grieving process, then too are we asked in this practice to practice letting go. Letting go of this idea of permanence. Letting go of our own permanence. Starting to notice in our own bodies the process that we are uh, certainly in that this body sometimes is vital and working just how we want it to be. This is exactly how it want, we want it to be. And then the next day we get sick or we sprain our ankle or we get shin splints or whatever. And suddenly we have to come into contact with, oh, this fragile body. It's not permanent We identify, I think, so strongly to this body, to this shell that is us. 
we put a big stamp on it, me, mine, this is who I am. We identify so strongly with it. It's so personal to us, and how could it not be? Right? It's ours. And of course, this thing that we call ours and mine and I is, too, constantly going through the state of impermanence. The parts of us that are working some days and not working so well other days is a constant reminder that it's in flux, that it's changing, that this thing that seems so solid right now is actually not. On a biological level, our cells are constantly dying and regenerating. This arm that is my arm is constantly regenerating. This will not be the same arm in this moment as it will be in moments to come. But we don't see that. We don't have the ability to see that. Our visual world doesn't actually include that. And so we don't think about it. We're in total denial of the impermanence of this body. We're not going to probably leave this hall thinking, this could be it. This is the only moment I have. When in reality, that's what we're learning over and over again through this practice, that this is the only moment we actually have. Our mind is constantly creating our future and reminding us of our past, but neither exists. All we have is this right now. And so we're constantly learning in this practice to let go into that. Let go into just this. Let go into the impermanence, the this that is now is not going to be there in the next moment. It's so subtle. It might not even seem relevant right now, but it is because of this truth that we are all going to have to face this at some point or another. Ram Dass talks about this. If you know who Ram Dass is, great spiritual leader in the Advaita tradition, um, a number of years ago, had a stroke. And he talks about how he really had pride in the fact that, or he thought that he had really done his work in relationship with death and that when the day came that he would be at ease with it. And as he was going through this process of really seeing the body shut down, as he was experiencing his stroke, he was terrified. He was terrified. He didn't want to die. Of course he didn't want to die. And it was this huge wake-up call that even with all the work that he had been doing all these years, he was still not ready. And so he talks about it being him being stroked with grace. This second chance to um, let go. And for those who have come in contact with him since, say that he really truly has. There's this deep peace and gentleness with every moment that he seems to carry with him a deeper understanding because of this opportunity. John O'Donohue, who I read, was um, also died very young, very suddenly, he spoke a lot about death. Um, and I think in, in part was, you know, who knows what his experience was at the end, but um, 
it's interesting to me that the people when I was exploring this topic, all of them, uh, most of them had passed away and had passed away either young or in an unexpected way. I'm going to read a little bit from Ajahn Chah, who uh, was a great Thai master, um, who uh, also had major medical problems and was practically bedridden and unable to speak for the last some 10 years of his life. Not many people know that. Um, John O'Donohue, dying very young, I believe, of a heart attack. Um, He wrote this uh, not long before he died, called Death as an Invitation to Freedom. If you really live your life to the full, death will never have power over you. It will never seem like a destructive negative event. It can become for you the moment of release into the deepest treasures of your own nature. It can be your full entity, entry into the temple of your soul. If you are able to let go of things, you learn to die spiritually in little ways during your life. When you learn to let go of things, a greater generosity, openness, and breath comes into your life. Imagine this letting go multiplied a thousand times at the moment of your death. That release can bring you to a complete new divine belonging. And so we don't have to think about this death as something that's morbid and something that is um, separate from life. It's like he said earlier, it's it's the, the true frontier of life is this death, this ultimate letting go. I'll finish with this really beautiful um, teaching by Ajahn Chah. He's at the bedside of um, an old woman who's dying, and he offers this teaching to her. And I'll read part of it. He actually goes on for some time, um, and so I'll just read a part of it. But... uh, I want you to feel the, the essence of kindness through this process, the warmth of this, that coming into contact with death and this idea of letting go, there's nothing cold about it. There's nothing sterile about it. It's actually, there's so much aliveness in this process of dying. He says, close your eyes and set your heart on making your mind one. Bring the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha into your heart as a way of showing the Buddha respect. Today, I haven't brought you a gift of any substance aside from the Dharma and of the Dharma of the Buddha. This is my last gift to you, so please accept it. You should understand that even the Buddha with all his virtues and perfections, couldn't avoid the weakening that comes with aging. When he reached the age you are, he let go. He let go of the fabrications of life. Letting go means that he put these things down. Don't carry them around. Don't weigh yourself down. Accept the truth about the fabrications of this body whatever they may be. You've relied on them since you were born, but now it's enough. 
Now that they're old, they're like the utensils in your home, the cups and the saucers and the plates, and you've held on to them all these years. When you first got them, they were bright and clean, but now they're wearing you out. Oh, now they're wearing out. Some of them are broken, some of them are lost. While the ones remaining have all, uh, have all changed. They haven't stayed the same. They're just, it's just the way things are. The same holds true to the parts of your body. From the time of birth and through your childhood and youth, they kept changing. Now they're called old. So accept that fact. The Buddha taught that fabrications aren't us. They aren't ours. Whether they're inside the body or out, they keep changing in this way, complete. Uh, Contemplate this until it's clear. This body of yours, lying here and decaying, is the truth of the Dharma. This truth is the teaching of the Buddha that's certain and sure. He taught us to look at it, to contemplate it, to accept what's happening. And it's something you should accept regardless of what's happening. The Buddha taught when we're imprisoned to make sure that it's only our body that's imprisoned. Don't let the mind be imprisoned. And the same thing applies here. When the body wears out with age, accept it. But make sure that it's only the body that gives, that's wearing out. Make sure that the affairs of the mind are something else entirely. This gives your mind energy and strength because you see into the Dharma that this is the way things are. This is the way they have to be. As the Buddha taught, this is the way the body and the mind are of their own accord. They can't be any other way. As soon as the body is born, it begins to age. As it ages, it gets sick. After it's sick, it dies. This truth is so true. This truth you're encountering today. It's the truth of the Dharma. Look at it with your discernment so that you see. Even the fire, where even if fire were to burn your house or water were to flood it or whatever the danger that would come to it, make sure that it's only the house that gets burned. Make sure that your heart doesn't get burned along with it. If water floods your house, don't let it flood your heart. Make sure, the floods, make sure the fl- it floods only the house, which is something outside the body. As, your, as for the mind, get it to let go and leave things be. Because now is the proper time, the proper time to let go. So what I'd like to do is have you um, explore this a little bit with each other. Explore what your relationship with impermanence, with death is. And so how we'll do this is um, turn to one or two people next to you. 
If you'd rather just stay quiet, that's fine too. And um, you can just close your eyes and people will know that's what you're doing. But otherwise, I'd like you to turn and create little groups and then I'll tell you what I'd like you to discuss. Okay. So, what I'd like you to answer, uh, and you can just go around perhaps just go around the circle or go back and forth with each other if it's just a group of two. And I'd like you to share um, uh, what is your relationship with your own impermanence, which is kind of a big question. So you don't need to go on and on and on about it. (laughs) But maybe just a few sentences. (laughs) An easier one? No, we don't do that here. No, take a moment to think about it, though. I won't just say start, go. Take a moment to think about it for yourself. Because I can sit up here and I can talk all night. It doesn't really matter what I say. What matters is actually your own interpretation or your own experience of this. What matters is you coming into contact with this fact. So take a moment to think about it. Think about what is your relationship with your own impermanence. Do you think about it? Is it easy for you to even come into contact with it? Does it seem unlikely that you need to come in contact with it? Or maybe it's very much in your reality these days. There's no right or wrong answer here. It's just a way for you to truly reflect and also be witnessed and witness others in their exploration. So we'll just take um, uh, a few minutes for this. So maybe uh, if you're a larger group, just one minute each. If you're a smaller group, um, maybe just uh, two minutes each. I'll ring the bell to let you know that we're going to go on to another question. So you can choose who starts and begin. And we'll, we'll take about one more minute. Great. So I have one more for you, and then we'll do a little bit of Q&A. This one's a little bit different. Um, I'd like you to, uh, you're going to go either back and forth if you're a group of two, or you're just going to go from one person to the next and say one thing, and it's just going to go back and forth or around in a circle with this next question. I'm deciding between two questions what I want to give you. What is difficult to let go of right now? What is difficult to let go of right now? And it might be right now in this moment. It might be right now at this time in your life. What is hard to let go of? right now.
happen. And so you won't go into a huge explanation about it. You'll just state it. And then you're going to just keep going around and around and around. And if you say, I don't know, that's fine. And it just goes to the next person. Okay? So you can turn back to your, to your group or your partner. And we'll do it for just two minutes. Okay? And you can begin... Um, any questions? I'd love to hear what came up out of both of those um, explorations. Any comments? Yeah, do you want to? That'd be great. All right, I turned it off for now. It's hard to let. What's hard to let go of right now? I love Ajahn Chah's way of describing what letting go. We hear that a lot, I feel like, in spiritual communities. Just let go. Just let go. And, uh, you know, what the hell does that mean? (laughs) You know? And Ajahn Chah's really um, simple but profound way of explaining letting go is simply just putting it down. We carry so many things with us, whether it's emotional, mental, physical, people, relationships, so many things that we can, our memories, our hopes, right? And letting go is just simply, just put it down. Just put it down. Jackie? So my first comment was judgment. Letting go of judgments. Yeah. Thank you. Hello. Oh, there it is. <laughs> um, I'm very, very early in my exploration of Buddhism, um, and one of the things that's really that I'm continuing to sort of come across is um, trying to arrange my future in a way to maximize pleasure, to maximize things that I enjoy. You're among many. <laughs> it's a, it won't bite. Okay. <laughs> I was very surprised and not surprised at how sim. Uh, okay, sorry. I was really surprised and also not surprised at how overlapping the three of our letting go words were. Uh-huh. What were do you remember some of them? Um uh, I not right now. <laughs> no, no. Do you do you know any do you remember? Um I remember mine which was letting go of fear. Fear. And what else? I'm sure nobody else had that. Like in go <laughs> of ego. Yeah. <laughs> and uh need for Security, things being the same or better yeah. in the future. It's such a, I, I was, I'm hoping that the, that exploration of uh, seeing what is it that's so hard to let go 
is helpful to to see, you know, what are the main, you know, the top five, you know, for now. What are the top five? Um, there's plenty of things that are hard to let go of, but maybe just the top five hard things. And, um, you know, death is such a teacher in this way because, of course, anything that anyone's going to mention, we don't get to take any of it, right? It all has to do with our comforts of being in this life alive now, doesn't it? It has to do with going towards pleasure and away from pain. It has to do with if it's, you know, fear and ego. These are just um, ingrained mental states that um, aren't so helpful, are they? And yet we do. We still hang on to them. We have a hard time of just letting them, just setting them down as if without them, then we're not whole. I think that's part of it, isn't it? We get the sense that if we let go, what's left, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Including things like our ego, our fears, our judgments, right? The things that make us you know, happy for a moment, are the pleasure. Uh, without it, what's left? And even just right now in this moment, just sitting here, you know, nothing, none of that's needed, right? Your ego isn't, isn't needed right now. You're just sitting here. Your fear, you know, if it's here, then it's here, but it's not necessary, right? I don't know if you're getting pleasure out of this. It's not necessary, <laughs> right? Judgment, it's not necessary. None of it's necessary. But we get this idea that without it, then what? What am, what am I? So even though we're, we're still here, we're still among the living, we get to learn how to set things down. It's all in a bit, in a way, it's just a preparation for this next big step, perhaps. We're just learning how to let go of, let set things down. It's just not necessary. Ernie. I, do, I think um, in regards to impermanence, mm-hmm. it's more difficult. Mm, how do I say this? I like the fact that I'm older, mm-hmm. it, but it's also more difficult to deal with aging than to think about one day I won't be here. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Because of limitations, because of... identity or what well it's almost like to think I won't be here one day for me personally is almost a relief Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and I think about my kids Um, so I had kids at an older age so my kids are like in their mid 20s I have concern for them about me going more than I have concern about me about me going yeah. Yeah. Sure. I forget what I what I was reading. Who was talking? It might have actually been in this passage with um, Ajahn Chah. If not, it was a statement from Ajahn uh, or um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, who was another monk um, and, and prolific writer and scholar. Um, those places where we the fear and the concern come up of 
it's really um, somehow connected to us thinking that, you know, it's the same kind of thing. Without me, then what? <laughs> right? <laughs> and the truth is that we all leave this world eventually. And as long as the world is still here, it just keeps going, right? It just keeps going, which is the nature of things. Even our loved ones who will grieve for us and it will be hard. And everyone just keeps going. It all keeps going. Yeah. Did it make it to you, Ernie? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just wanted to share that uh, I'm 75 and on, the way, on my way down, so I'm looking forward backward or something to the end. But what I wanted to share was about two, three weeks ago, I discovered how I wanted to go. Hmm. I have a friend who lives in Holland. He's part of a spiritual work group. I've known him for 10, 15 years. He comes, he's been coming to the United States to be with a teacher. And uh, <clears throat> I got some emails about three weeks ago that he'd been having some trouble forgetting things and dropping things and whatever, and took him to the hospital, discovered he has a brain tumor. And it's way deep down in the brain and can't be radiated or, you know, operated on. And according to the reports from his friends, he is happy. He doesn't know quite where he is. He recognizes people sometimes. He's being taken care of immensely. There's a lot of people around who love him. And he is happy as a clam. <laughs> and he has about, you know, I forget, maybe six, you know, six weeks, a couple of months or so to go is the prognosis. Mm-hmm. And he's living in this space of bliss. That's how I want to go. When mm-hmm. I have, yeah. yeah, may it be so. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's a little bit like a couple of years ago, there's a woman named Jill Bolton Taylor who had a massive stroke mm-hmm. and wound up living for several years in this right, right brain kind of... She couldn't function in the oh, world, yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but she was just in this state of happiness. And I'm getting something of the same flavor for Soman. Mm. Yeah. He's living in just this wonderful space. Not that I have much of a choice about it one way or the other, but... Uh, that's the thing. That's we my don't, preference. Do we? we don't at all. We really don't. But yeah, it, it would be wonderful. And, you know, I think this teaching from Ajahn Chah, with, it, it doesn't go on to say, in what I have anyway, the state of this woman who's on her deathbed as he's speaking to her. And... Um, but you get the sense that as he's speaking to her, there's, there must be some kind of struggle because he's soothing her with what he's saying. He's being very real with her, not, not trying to um, pat it in any way. But at the same time, um, there's a, a sense of, of soothing into this. Just put it down. It's time. It's time to go. And so for, for those of you who have been with someone who has been who is in their last days or in their last breaths it can be so different for each person the experience is so personal and um, this hanging on in the struggle we can struggle all the way to the end we can fight all the way to the end and I think what's so beautiful here is Ajahn Chah saying you don't have to and it's so wonderful for your friend Ernie that he's in this space that perhaps he's not even aware of the idea of needing to struggle. And, um, and that 
could be just so ideal. And not all of us will meet our end in that way. And so learning how to now, just in our day-to-day, how to, how to put it down, set it, set it down, and come to this peace with whatever is happening. It's what we're doing. We are, we are letting go with whatever is happening, whether it's on your deathbed or it's sitting here in meditation and you're hearing noises and it's cold and it's, you know, there's incense and, you know, you're wanting to, um, you know, get up and stretch or you're, you're um, whatever, having to cough and you don't want to and there's this struggle going on and can we just relax in those moments into what's available in this moment? Oh, it's discomfort. And allowing the mind to be uh, uh, not imprisoned, as he was saying, that the body can be dis- in discomfort, it can be completely shutting down, and yet can we still, in the mind and in the heart, stay open? Can we let go? Can we be free there? That's where the freedom is. It won't be uh, in this body. So we are at time. Um, I hope that was helpful for you. And if not, then it's not. But (laughs) I hope it was. And so if you're interested in those five reflections, if you just Google Buddhism, five daily reflections, they'll come up. And I highly recommend them as a daily practice, as the Buddha did. And so we'll take a moment to dedicate the merit. Of our, of our time together, just acknowledging um, the wholesomeness of practicing in this way, of um, taking the time to reflect on a topic such as this is very wholesome and one that um, creates wholesome fruit in our life. And so we acknowledge that that fruit is, is helpful for us but it's also for all beings, the beings in our lives, our family and our friends. The more at peace that we can be, the more at peace that they can be. So may it be that the goodness of our practice um, be for the benefit of, of all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy and content in their lives. May all beings experience safety from inner and outer harm. May all beings experience wellness, if not in the body, then uh, a freedom in the mind. And may all beings come into contact with their ability to set things down, to be at ease, to let go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.